Shrink Wrap Radio number 862, Jill Stoddard, Ph.D., on how to deal with feelings of being an imposter. And now it's time for Dr. Dave and Shrink Wrap Radio. You're on the couch again with Dr. Dave and Shrink Wrap Radio. Shrinkwrap Radio, all the psychology you need to know when just enough to make it dangerous, it's all in your head. And now here's your host, Dr. Dave. My guest today is psychologist Jill Stoddard, PhD, author of the 2023 book, Imposter No More. She is a recovered imposter herself. For years, she was convinced that the only reason she was accepted into a competitive graduate school program was because her father knew the program director. Dr. Stoddard isn't alone in this. Deep down, the majority of successful people question their professional legitimacy a good amount of the time. Now, here's the interview. Dr. Jill Stoddard, welcome to Shrinkwrap Radio. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so pleased to be here. Well, I'm pleased to have this opportunity to meet you and to find out about your work. And we're going to be discussing your latest book, Imposter No More. And uh, looking into your background a bit, I was intrigued to see that you had uh, studied with um, David Barlow who I interviewed way back in 2008. And I believe yeah, I we talked that. about... Oh, and, guest of yours, yeah. Yeah, funny. yeah, in fact, yeah. I think he was a specialist in anxiety therapy, as I recall. Yeah, that's right. And so then some years later, you kind of graduated to work with, um, with Stephen Hayes, Stephen C. Hayes. And you've written a book about your work with him, or, or what uh, a book about his work as you've used it, called Metaphors in Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. So I'm glad to hear about that because clearly this is kind of both of these guys are somebody you know that I was had been tracking, and so I think later on into the interview maybe I'll ask you for some of those metaphors and maybe they'll sure. pop up anyway. But uh, somehow you weren't on my radar for that book, but then here you are is just in time for this, this other topic, which is great. So uh, you start off with some of your personal stories about imposter syndrome. Uh, and uh, one that you tell is about uh, how your admittance to a doctoral program at Boston University. Uh, a very prestigious program. And so, so tell us, what, what were your reactions to that? 
well, this is, you know, people ask me all the time, what got me interested in this topic? And I said, you know, you hear research is me search. And I had this experience. I met with a mentor of mine who said, now, listen, you're going to go to Boston and you're going to think everyone knows more than me. And I don't truly belong here. And at any minute, they're going to find out that I'm a fraud. And I just went, how did you know? How how did (laughs) you know? Like, I had never heard anyone talk about this before. He didn't call it imposter anything. He just talked about it in this way. And so I had already been feeling that way because I applied to this prestigious program, as you said, to work with David Barlow. And I didn't tell my parents. I grew up in the Boston area. I had been living in San Diego for a few years. And so Boston was home and I didn't want to tell my parents because I didn't want any pressure to come back. And then the secret just sort of ate away at me. I was feeling very guilty that I wasn't <laughs> yeah. sharing this information with them. So when I when I told my dad, he said, and my dad's, you know, a business guy. He's not remotely connected to the world of mental health. And he said, Dave Barlow, the clinical psychologist. And I just wow. and my chin dropped. I was like, <laughs> what? How how do you know him? And it turned out they had played golf together a few times. They belonged oh. to the same golf club. Oh my goodness. And so, you know, I applied with 100% certainty that this would all be moot because there was no way I was going to get in. And I got in. And that was in around the year 2000. So over 20 years. And I still to this day worry that the only reason I was granted this acceptance is because David Barlow knew my dad. And now, of course, rationally, I know that can't be true. Like, that's not really giving Dave Barlow much credit, is it? Right? Like, he wouldn't just Uh. let some daughter of a golf buddy into his program if she weren't somebody who was going to go out in the world and do good things with the degree that she had gotten. But just at an emotional level, that that security remains. And so that's what got me interested in the topic. And then even more than that is that maybe I would only feel this way in the beginning. But once I proved myself and once I accomplished enough things, maybe I could outrun this feeling. And, you know, it turns out that that's not what happens at all. And in many cases, it's the opposite of that. And so I just find that to be fascinating that we can, the more we accomplish, it it just doesn't, it just doesn't doesn't seem to go away. It's not the cure. Right. Right. (laughs) And, and, uh, I had never run across that, uh, phrase that you uh, started with that all research is me search. And that's a great one. I have to remember that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's so true. You know, it's, it's so short, so pithy, and so true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so very true. And that's why I, you know, as a clinical psychologist, I always like to dig into people's personal lives uh, somewhat extensively, <laughs> because I've got that clinician's curiosity and want to be able to put that whole picture together. And so I was glad to see, you know, whenever I get I get the person's book, I look to see if that's in there. And fortunately, it was for you and, you know, in quite a few places, but particularly in, in the intro. And there was another story that you tell in there, uh, which I thought was particularly good. Uh, and it was a question put to you by your writing coach, uh, Leanne. And, and again, you were kind of struggling with a with a with a uh, imposter syndrome issue. You know, when I first encountered the book, and I thought, Oh, I don't suffer from that. 
<laughs> total blindness. <laughs> total, total blindness. I've, I've selective forgetting because of, as I thought about it a little bit more, wait a second. You know, even for um, even for these interviews that I do now, as I'm as I'm getting to be older, and oh, nobody's going to want to listen to you know this old guy talking to people, there and is, uh, yeah. and uh, so I have to. We'll talk about how I can deal with that, but uh, tell us about uh, this key and critical advice that you got from your uh, writing coach, Leanne. So she. She had asked me, and I, I will say um, the book is dedicated to Leanne. She unfortunately died when we were uh, in the middle of working on this proposal oh, together. She was very yeah. young in her late 40s. Oh, wow. um, and she had asked me, are you a psychologist who wants to write? Or she, she asked me, like, why do you have to write this book? And are you a psychologist who wants to write or a writer who's also a psychologist. And I thought about it and I could sense like deep inside me that the answer was that even though I'm trained as a psychologist and it's what I do professionally, I really feel like I desperately want to be a writer and I happen yeah. to also be a psychologist. And as soon as I admitted that to her and to myself, I really was flooded with imposter feelings. And in fact, when I first wrote the proposal for this book, the title was going to be not a real writer. And it was going uh. to be a book about imposterism specifically for writers. And my agent thought that it was a little too niche and that we need it. So then I was going to have it be for creatives of all kinds. And then we made it for all professionals. Um, but again, that research is me search is just, I really resonated with, you know, I think when you're putting creative work out into the world, it is so incredibly vulnerable. You know, I can like make a spreadsheet and show it to you and not feel terribly self-conscious about it, but right. something that I'm, you know, that I'm writing, that I'm creating. And, you know, the more I talk about this, the more I hear that artists of all kinds, especially if they don't make their living that way, you know, if art in any form is like a side hustle, that this is a place where a lot of people experience these imposter thoughts and feelings because you don't feel like you're a real, you know, painter, sculptor, writer, yeah, yeah, whatever the case may be, yeah. And, and I think, in fact, as you looked into it more, you discovered that, uh, and you you had written books already. You had already written books, and you had achieved a lot as a writer already. But somehow that wasn't enough. And then one of the things that I think you discovered as you've continued is that it's not limited to artists and creative people, um, but there are lots of situations. Anybody who gets uh, the job that they really wanted or something like that, uh, or the raise or whatever, uh, tell us a bit about that. How, just how widespread is it, do you think? So it's estimated to affect up to 70% of us at some point in our life. And so, you know, for anyone who's watching on YouTube that can see the book in the background, the, the, their actual title is imposter no more, but the word syndrome is there in light gray letters crossed out because really this is not a syndrome, right? If you look up the definition of syndrome, it says something about disease disorder, you know, psychological mm. issue. Um, and of course, if 70% of people experience this, it's just normal, right? Uh -huh. it's, it's not a syndrome. Um, there's a shockingly small number of well-done research studies about this. There's tens of millions of Google hits, 
but not really good science. But with what we do have out there, at least, are some hypotheses that experiences of marginalization may also make this more likely, right? So like if you're a woman who's gotten messages that you don't belong in men's mm-hmm. spaces, you know, if you're in the LGBT community, if you're a person of color, you know, we live in a culture where we get messages all the time, both overt and covert, that we don't belong at certain tables, that we don't belong in certain spaces. And so, you know, this is like, this is just a normal, a a normal reaction to a lot of normal experiences, not nice experiences, but, you know, um, common kind of experiences. So of course, it's really not a syndrome. It's very widespread. Yeah. Yeah, I guess the reason I re- I rejected it initially for myself was I was thinking of some of the fa- famous stories about imposters, like the great imposter. Uh, there was a movie and a, and a, a very popular story about uh, about that. And it, actually, the, the guy that that was about, I'm going to block on his name now, uh, taught at my high school after I left. And, and read about it later. Uh, so that's, that is but amazing. But he was but an these, actual imposter, right? Yeah, yeah. Right. And of course, this is the opposite. We fear we're going to be outed as frauds, but we're not actually imposters in any way. And, you know, I think one of the things that's really interesting about this phenomenon is that it comes up in the spaces that we care the most about. Right. Like nobody, I joke that like nobody's laying awake at night worrying about whether their favorite show is going to come back for another season, even if they really love the show. The things that we worry about, the places we fear we're going to be outed for being incompetent are the places that really matter, you know, where we want to contribute something to the world, to be skillful, to be creative. Um, And, you know, typically pain tells us to run, right? If you put your hand on a hot stove, you want to take your hand away and avoid a burn. But when it comes to emotional pain, I think often if we're feeling distress, it's really a sign that we are exactly where we're meant to be because this is something that matters. And so instead of running away, we really should be looking at that and leaning in. Yeah, I wonder if part of the uh, the phenomenon also includes the part of us that uh, tends to weight criticism much more heavily mm-hmm. than than everything else you know yeah. if i hear one criticism of of my podcast it's really hard not to just obsess about that and feel like well maybe it's time to throw the whole thing in yeah 100% i mean we have that negativity bias that i think evolutionarily was adaptive you know it's 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 more protective there's more of a survival advantage right. to avoid uncertainty to worry about what's up ahead around the corner you know we, we human beings didn't have the, the the claws and the and the fangs and the running at high speeds we had each other so checking our status you know do, do i add value am i good enough would would prevent us from being ousted from our tribe which would literally be a life or death situation. And so I think right. we really evolved to have these worries and concerns. Mm-hmm. And again, another reason why it's normal and not really a syndrome. Um, anywhere that's where a lot of that social comparison comes in. And that the 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 negativity bias is that cognitive bias where we overestimate the likelihood that bad things will happen and underestimate our ability to cope with it. So you're a hundred percent right paying attention to that one piece of data. Yeah. 
And it's meant to protect you from humiliation, from failure, from being kicked out of, you know, your group of people. But depending on how we respond to it, it can be more harmful than than helpful. Um, The question comes up, is there a cure? And um, the fact that you say, well, it's it's not a disease, so I guess... I guess the answer has to be no then, right? It does appear to not be a cure. I mean, I think it's just like, it seems to be the case that nearly every human has some version of an inner critic, that 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 voice that says, I'm not sure I'm good enough, you know? Yeah. Um, that this isn't a pathology. This is just how we've been wired for the last couple hundred thousand years. And so there doesn't appear to be a cure. And what's interesting is most of the books or articles or blogs that are out there kind of do try to sell the 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 treatment as a cure that like okay you need to learn how to have more confidence you need to build your self esteem you need to change those negative thoughts into positive thoughts and certainly if someone is capable of doing that if that works and that helps you to go after the life you want that is great but for most of us we find that that really backfires right so like I could sit here and give you all the reasons why that one bad review doesn't matter and let me read off your resume to you and let me tell you, remind you of all the amazing successes you've had, David. And your mind is going to go, well, yeah, but. Right. Well, yeah, but. And you're just (laughs) going to give me an opposing data point. That's just how our brains work. And we end up in this battle of like trying to feel better about ourselves and then often waiting to do the thing until we have more confidence or self-esteem or positive thinking. And that's really a trap. And and what's different about, about this book is that it's not about changing all those thoughts and feelings. It's about changing your relationship to them so that you can go after the life you want, even in the presence of difficult thoughts and feelings. Yeah. You know, I wanted to challenge that a little bit because you've studied with people who I think are classified as behavior therapists, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? So, yes. the, so that makes me, you know, one would ask, well, well, isn't there a behavior therapy approach to working with this, which maybe it's not a cure, but it's somehow falls no, into the exactly therapy right. camp. Yeah. yeah. I don't think it's a cure, but it allows you to live your life. You know, if you're a behaviorist, what you want to change is, behavior. And this, all the books that I write are based on acceptance and commitment therapy. So that you had mentioned working with Steve Hayes in the past and act is actually a very, it's based in radical behaviorism. Um, And, you know, so the idea is to change behavior, but not to try to control thoughts and feelings. We manipulate the context in an, in an effort to change behavior so that people are living their lives in line with their most deeply held personal values. But I, you know, I, I, my education was like a traditional CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, where you do right. learn how to change your thoughts. Yeah. And again, if that works, right? Like if I'm sitting in traffic and I'm thinking, this stinks, I'm going to be late. Why don't these people have jobs? Why are all these jerks on the road? You know, that's going to make me feel stressed and tense. And I can stop that and go, okay, Jill, chill out. It's just traffic. It's not the end of the world. You'll get there when you get there. Getting upset about it isn't going to make the cars go any faster. Those are thoughts that I can effectively change that help me feel better, right? So if that works, there's nothing wrong with that. But it seems to be the case that when we try to apply that to those I'm not enough thoughts, it just doesn't work. 
Hmm. They're, and they're, so they need to have another way. Yeah, they have a certain strength to them, huh? For yeah. some of the reasons that we were just discussing, that uh, the uh, the notion of being excluded from the from your group, right? And and, uh, and that can be a life and life or death, career or no career, right. kind of thing. And even now we know, you know, so much research. This this lot, you know, the longest longitudinal study ever done out of Harvard. You know, we now know that quality relationships are the biggest predictor of mental and physical well-being for humans. So that again, when you look at those I'm not good enough stories, oh, so yeah. often they boil down to a fear of disconnection, a fear of being, you know, excluded or rejected because we yeah. humans need each other literally to survive. Even though it wasn't yeah. to survive, you know, saber-toothed tigers like it might have been then. It's different now. Yeah. But we still do need quality relationships in order to thrive as human beings. You know, one of, one of the CBT notions that that kind of speaks to me, even though I don't identify with being in that camp, but as a human being, it, it makes sense to me that, um, that we have to kind of be on guard against negative thoughts that bring us down and so on, give, uh, repeating negative messages to ourselves. And one of the ways that that made sense to me was uh, I, I came up during a time when I was really fascinated by all these martial arts movies and uh, ninja movies and so on. And uh, so I imagine uh, being a swordsman who one of these uh, legendary swordsmen who, you know, can handle many attackers is so alert and attuned you know and you just go whip, whip, real quick I love that. and yeah. so i feel like okay i've got to have that kind of attention so i can strike these things down or thin them off um yeah so that's a metaphor that that uh, i kind of use with myself uh, a fair amount and so i think of this also to put it again in the martial arts context you end up having to do a sort of jujitsu on yourself. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? That totally makes sense. I love that. Yeah. I think that's a great metaphor. And what yeah. it makes me think of, you know, in acceptance and commitment therapy, we talk about cognitive defusion, which is essentially like unhooking from your thoughts so that they're not in charge of what you're choosing to do or not do. And as I'm imagining sort of like battling, you know, the thoughts flying at you and sort of whacking them exactly. away with the swords. Yeah it gives this this distance right these thoughts kind of become these things that we can choose uh -huh. to sort of almost have like a force field and you could try to change the content of them like i said about traffic if that works or you can change your relationship so these are things that you're keeping separate from yourself right there's mm -hmm. this space between you and your thinking so that you can then choose what to do or not do based on the person you want to be and the life that you want to live irrespective yeah. of what your mind is throwing at you yeah are there different types of imposter syndrome? So there are. There's a woman, Valerie Young, who's a psychologist who wrote a book about this. Um, I don't remember the year, but it's it's an older book. Um, and she identified these five subtypes. And they're not really subtypes of imposter. What they really are, although that's an easier way to think about it, but they are different ways that people try to overcompensate and prove their competence. Like, so there are these strategies to try to prevent 
feeling like a fraud. Okay. And they fall into five categories. Do you want me to talk about what those are? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so the first one is the expert. And this is the one, the category I fall into. <laughs> and this is the person who feels like um, in order to prove you're not a fraud, you have to make sure you have the right amount of expertise, experience, knowledge, skill, but there's never enough. I always, another metaphor I always think of is like you're trying to fill up a cup, but there's a hole in the bottom of the cup. So it never gets topped up. Oh, yeah. So that's the expert. And I think many people I speak to who who are highly educated tend to fall into that camp of like one more degree, one more certificate, one more class, you know. Um, so that's the expert. There is the perfectionist, and that's kind of self-explanatory. You know, it's having very, very high standards. And if you let that slide, then this, you know, sort of proves that you're a fraud. There's the soloist. This is the person who feels that success only counts if you do it yourself. So having to ask for help is kind of evidence that you're a fraud. There is the natural genius. This is the person who <laughs> believes that knowledge and expertise is innate. Like either you have it or you don't. It's a little bit like um, Carol Dweck's um, growth mindset versus uh, fixed mindset. And so if they don't learn something the very first time that they read it, they think that they're a fraud because they didn't, you know, get it quickly enough. And then the final one is the superhuman. And this is the person who thinks they should be able to like juggle all of the balls flawlessly with a smile on their face, never drop a ball ever. Um, and if that happens, if the ball drops, they think this is proof that they're a fraud. And if they were truly competent, they would have been able to, you know, spin plates on their nose at the same time that they were juggling yeah. all yeah. those things. Yeah, one one of the things one of the things that I loved in the book was uh, you actually gave a nickname to your inner critic. I, but I don't remember. Yeah, I don't Sheila, remember. My friend Sheila. 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 Yeah. Right? <laughs> so uh, how do you use that? How how does that work for you? So that's another cognitive diffusion technique. So it's really a way. What we often do is we see the world like from our thoughts. We treat our thoughts like they're truths with a capital T and we just, you know, listen to what they say and do what they tell us to do without giving it much thought, kind of like on autopilot. And so naming your inner critic and whether it's Sheila or, you know, the big mouth or the dictator, you know, it doesn't have to be a human name, but it could be. It sort of creates a little bit of that separation so that I can go, okay, Sheila, I hear you. I know that you're just trying to protect me from failure and humiliation, but I've got this. And it's not a way to try to shut up that thought or to suppress it, because we know the more we try to do that, research shows very clearly that that actually makes your thoughts have greater strength. Like even right now, if I said to you and all of your listeners, whatever you do, just don't think of a red balloon. You're immediately going to think of a red balloon. And the more you try to push the red balloon away, the more that red balloon is going to appear. And so naming the inner critic is not a way to say, shut up, Sheila, go away, Sheila. It's more to say like, okay, I acknowledge that you're here. Uh -huh. I know what you're trying to do for me, but I've got this. Like, I'm not going to listen to these thoughts in terms of me choosing what to do. Now, if the thought says you didn't pay your rent and the rent is due tomorrow, that's a thought I want to choose to listen to if I care about keeping a roof over my head. Yeah, right? right. But if the thought is saying, you're such a terrible mother, you might as well just up and leave your children. They'd be better off without you. That's a thought that I'm going to stop and go, okay, Sheila, settle down. <laughs> <laughs> right. This is a bit much. 
Yeah. And, yeah. and maybe choose not to listen to that one in quite the same way as I might to the, you should pay your, your rent thought. Yeah. Some of these ideas sound very familiar from other therapeutic approaches that have kind of recognize this, whether they're called subpersonalities or, you know, things like underdog, uh, various other terms. Uh, so it doesn't sound, uh, uh, it's good. That gives it, a, I think, a certain legitimacy right there in my mind that yeah. different per, per, uh, perspectives have really come up and recognized this phenomenon that you're describing. I don't know if you've had this experience, but I find the longer I'm in this field, you know, I think when you start out your education, sometimes there's this, my camp is right, your camp is wrong, sort of right. weird fighting. And the longer I do this, the more I have the thought, you know, we might all be speaking a different language, but at the end yes. of the day, we're kind of saying the very same thing. Yes, yes, you I know? really think and, so. And Steve Hayes will say that ACT has many, many influences, including Buddhism and other Eastern religions, Yeah. Um, but Gestalt, humanistic, and of course, behaviorism, it's a radical behavior therapy. So it's there have been many, many influences. Yeah, yeah. Well. the whole mindfulness movement certainly relates to what we were talking about earlier, yeah. the uses of attention. And uh, yeah, I don't identify with being a a, uh, a, a behaviorist primarily, but St Steve Hayes's work really challenges me in that area. I have to say, wow, this makes a lot of sense. And David Burns is another person, mm -hmm. if you're familiar with him, uh, who's just, you know, it all sounds so common sense and every day just obvious. Yeah. So. Yeah. So it's, well, it's I will great. say when I discovered acceptance and commitment therapy, I started living it in my own life. And the goal of ACT is just to build psychological flexibility, which is our ability to be in the present moment, in the presence of thoughts and feelings, ones we like, the ones we don't, and to make choices based on values, right? Who we want to be, what we want to stand for. In the world. Yeah. And once I started living my own life that way, I just saw a dramatic shift in in everything. I mean, I think it's just, it's an incredibly powerful and simple, not easy, but simple way to think about. I just, I just have this one goal and it's to be psychologically flexible whenever I'm faced with a choice. Uh -huh. And it's, it's been really powerful for me and for my clients too. I think Lady Gaga has, has spoken about deriving a lot of DBT. benefit from that approach. I What's think a DBT? DBT? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. She talked yeah. openly You're about right. doing DBT, which and they share some things in in common. Mindfulness, right? One of them. Yeah. 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 And you know, when you were t speaking of uh, of Buddhism and Zen, uh, one of the Zen stories that came to mind when when you were talking about the the uh, perfectionist, uh, the first of the five categories or strategies. And there's this Zen story of a professor uh, who uh, who goes to the uh, to the wise uh, uh, person, you know, to the Zen master, uh, and uh, and the Zen master is pouring his tea for him. And you probably have heard this story. And he just keeps pouring and pouring and. And uh, the professor said, oh, you're putting too much in the cup. It can't hold anymore. And, you know, just so, so are you. <laughs> there's, no, there's no room in your mind for anything else. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
So that that's another thing that reinforces. I haven't actually heard that one. That's new oh, to me. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. It, 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 I'm showing my history here. Zen Flesh, Zen Bones is a wonderful book that you would enjoy. That's full of uh, little stories like that. Nice. Little Zen What's it Zen called? Parables. Zen Flesh and Bones? Zen Flesh, Zen Bones. Okay. I'll have to look it up. Yeah. <laughs> I think you'll be glad. You'll find ways to work it into your work, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, so part of what you're, you're advising, and uh, I'll let you rhapsodize about this some, but in your book, what you found that, that was really important for you that you needed to do was to hold your outcomes lightly. I, I loved also your, you've got a wonderful uh YouTube video out there. I don't recall if that was in there or not, but I, that may have been an element in in that presentation as well. With the the pen exercise, yeah, is that what you saw. That's a TEDx talk that I did. So, and TEDx is on YouTube, so that must yeah. be what you saw. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think this is a critically important. Um, I I don't know what to call it. Sort of lesson that we all need to learn that is very. It's in opposition of what we're typically taught in our like Western culture. And what we're typically taught is that success means you achieve some outcome. You know, you have a goal, and many goals are are outcomes. They're outcome related. So if I I think I give the example in the book that if I had a goal for this book, certainly it would be to land on the New York Times bestseller list. Isn't that what every author hopes to happen? But I think the number of books that actually make the list are like 0.05%, if I'm remembering that correctly. Huh. And you can write a great book and you can do all the right things, but there are a number of factors that that determine whether a book lands on that list. And so to say, like, if that's that's the outcome I want, that's my goal. And so if I don't get it, does that mean I'm a failure, that I'm a failure as a writer, that my book is a failure? I just think we have that wrong because outcomes are so often not in our control. And so what we can focus on instead is the process. It's the steps that we take. It's the choices. It's the actions. Because that's that's what we get to control. We control how we move our hands and our feet and our mouth. And that's pretty much it. And then we can certainly desire and hope for a certain outcome. But the danger is if you don't get it. I, I think I tell the story in the book about how I was doing creative writing for 10 years and not getting published. It was rejection after oh, rejection yeah. after rejection. Yeah. You know, of course, the outcome I wanted was publication. And but because I was focused on process and steps and values, like why is this important to me? For me, it was about learning and skill building and just creativity. So that helped me to persevere, even when I wasn't. And and, and, com and, com and communication. You're mm -hmm. that's that's very high on your uh, <laughs> on your value list. I think as Definitely. being a communicator, yeah, edu educator, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so that the the ability to focus more on the why helps us to keep going, right? So even if you don't get the job or the promotion or the date or you know the whatever it is that 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 outcome you desire, you don't give up just because you quote unquote failed, right? You focus yeah. more on like the why to keep you moving in the directions that matter to you and hold those outcomes lightly. Yeah, yeah. And so in the TEDx talk, there's an exercise that I walk people through that that clients love. And so if people want to watch that, maybe we can link to it in your show notes or something. But 
Yeah, I recommend it. Um, you also talk about comfort zone dangers in the book. So tell us a bit about that. Well, you know, comfort zones are not all bad. They're comfortable after <laughs> yeah. all, right? And sometimes right. we want to just be comfortable. But, you know, they're they're almost never where growth happens. They're not where the, the magic and the sizzle happen. And there's actually a woman that I interviewed on, on my podcast named Maho Malfino, who wrote a book called Break the Good Girl Myth. And she talks about, you know, if you picture a comfort zone as a circle, she she does that outline in a dotted line, and she calls it the vulnerability edge. And I'm not actually sure if that was originally hers or she heard that from someone else, but that's where I learned it. And she talks about how if you stray way, way, way outside of that comfort zone, you're going to be very likely to jump right back into the middle and never walk out again. But that all you need to do is come up against that vulnerability edge. And if you just step your one foot over that vulnerability edge and do the things that are scary, that are uncomfortable, then the vulnerability edge grows larger and larger, right? Your comfort zone, or maybe it's smaller and smaller, um, or no, more and more things become comfortable. I said that right the, the first time, and that edge starts to stretch further. Yeah. So it's like, what's one thing you can do to get outside of that safety zone? Not just not because it's like no pain, no gain, not for the sake of being scared, but because it means doing something that's important to you, that really matters to you. And, and I think where I have gotten the most practice with this is through podcasting. When I first started podcasting, I felt like a complete fraud because I don't know anything about podcasting. And when I would want to ask guests to be on that I saw as being, you know, famous, of course, famous in psychology, not famous to anybody other than us probably. But, you know, I would have these like, who do I think I am? I can't ask this person to come talk to little old me. I'm nobody. And I, I would step out of that comfort zone and I would ask. And sometimes I got rejected. And guess what? No big deal. I could handle that. But lots of times people who I never thought would say yes said yes. And what yeah. an incredible opportunity. Yeah. And then of course, I'd be very nervous to do the interview. And again, I have to be outside of my comfort zone to do that. But now that I've been doing this for a few years, it's gotten easier and easier and easier. Well, what's the name of your podcast? You've got, you've got the world intrigued now. So <laughs> what if they want to uh, listen to that? Yes, thank you. It's called Psychologists Off the Clock. And we do just like you do. We interview experts in psychology, very often book authors, about all different science-backed ideas yeah. in psychology. Yeah. And I went through the same thing when I, when I started doing it so many years ago. I think it was 27, 2005 is when I started wow. doing it. So, I, so there I were maybe you, you have like over 800 episodes at this point or something, right? It's it's actually more like over a thousand. Oh my uh, gosh. Wow. Yeah. It's 800 in shrink wrap radio, but I also had another one called wise council, which uh -huh. I th is where I, uh, yeah. And um, so there's at least another 300 there. Wow. So, yeah. So, and but I had to, when I started out, I, I, I thought, I, I thought, well, you know, I have a, a, a an inner circle of of colleagues and and uh, weird weird friends, you know, who, and I'll invite them, weird psychologists, and um, but then I, 
I read about some psychologist down at USC in a magazine article, and I thought, oh, he's doing interesting research in the political arena. I wonder if I wonder if I reached out to him, and that was the beginning. Yeah. You know, like yes, he wanted to, and and I can still get you know, and I I call it going after big fish. I've always you know, it feels it's kind of a, gives my ego a little shot in the arm. Um, and um, and as you say, you know, they're not always going to come through, and sometimes I still can get a little nervous, but. I can generally talk myself out of that <laughs> pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, and oh, the other thing that, that came to mind in terms of the comfort zone is I'm also aware, and this moves us into a somewhat different area, but life will move us out of our comfort zone sooner or later. And yeah, you know, and often the most growth happens for people in the as a aftermath of trauma, tragedy, death, things that we just would never want to be visited by. But willy-nilly, like it or not, a certain amount of that's going to come to each of us in our life sooner or later. And so to me that's that's just further proof of the principle. And I suppose one way of dealing with that is to learn flexibility and be practicing for that event 100%. by, by making, like making smaller risks. Yeah. yeah, right. Exactly. And I think, you know, the price of admission to being human is having pain. And the more you, you know, I, I, I sometimes tell my clients, I've been practicing ACT and psychological flexibility personally in my life for over 20 years, and I'm more anxious than I've ever been. And I said, that's the bad news. They're like, what? But I'm here. I thought you were going to make me feel better. But the reason I'm more anxious is because I'm stepping out of my comfort zone and I'm being brave uh -huh. and I'm doing things that are hard. And so that comes with pain. And back to what you were saying about like in life, life is hard. It is going to throw you out of your comfort zone. And, and it's like, if you are going to love someone, you're going to risk loss. You know, if you yeah. want the joy of being reunited with someone, you have to miss them in order for that to happen, right? Like, we don't just get the emotions we like and avoid the emotions we don't because really they're two sides of the same coin. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, all right. Well said. And I think if you hide in your comfort zone, there's a uh, illusion that you're avoiding pain, but then you're just visited by the pain that comes when you're not living the life you want to live. Right. Yeah, that yeah. like, you, you know, right. that you're not getting out there and being brave right. and doing the thing. And so then there's yeah. the pain of knowing you're being avoided. Yeah. So yeah. like either way you have to deal with pain. So yeah. do you want the kind that comes by living big <laughs> or the <laughs> kind that comes with living small? Yeah. Now, uh, late in the book, you talk about the importance of community. Can you say a bit about that? Yes. I sometimes think I wish I put that chapter earlier because, you know, I forget what the statistic is, but lots of people peter out on self-help books before they get to the end of the, get to the very <laughs> end of the book, right? They read like 50%. Yeah. Um, but I think this is so vitally important. You know, we were talking earlier about all this research that shows how important quality relationships are to our physical and mental well-being. 
And I think community is a place that when we struggle to get out of our comfort zones, it is really a space where we can get bolstered. You know, I tell a story about how I had run for an office and I didn't, I, I didn't even get on the ballot, let alone get elected. And the next year when the opportunity came around again, I was just really scared that that failure felt big to me. And it, and I felt like it would be humiliating if I put yeah. myself out there again and failed. And it was because of a community, a professional community of women that I was part of that really said, no, you should do this. You're great. We believe in you. And, and I also knew, but even if I fail again, they'll be there. So they they helped me to be brave, and I knew they would also help me if I was in pain, if I didn't, if I didn't end up getting the outcome that I that I had wanted. Yeah. Um, and and I just I, I think that we can, we humans really really need to lean on each other, and now more than ever with all of this crazy divisiveness that has happened over the last however many years. This oh yeah. Happening. Right. Right. Well, that moves us into the last thing that you address in the book, which is change the world. That sounds very ambitious. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <easy>. <laughs> <laughs> what in the world do you have in mind there? Just change the world. Yeah. Well, it's, it's you know, what I want to make the point about with this whole imposter syndrome thing, you know, when the psychologists who originally identified this phenomenon, Pauline Clance and Suzanne Imes, way back in 1978, they called it the imposter phenomenon, but they thought that it only occurred in high-achieving women. And I don't think it's a coincidence that shortly after that, it was like rebranded as a syndrome, right? Oh, this is a thing that happens to women. It must be pathological. It's a syndrome, huh. especially because it was the late 70s, early 80s, right? Um, and so as we were talking about, it appears that maybe experiences with marginalization make these uh, thoughts and feelings more common. So that is a systemic problem and an organizational problem. It is not an individual problem. And right now the messages are like, oh, you have imposter syndrome. You need to go get help and fix yourself. And of course, I just wrote a book to do exactly that. Because if we're suffering, then I think there are skills we can learn so that this doesn't hold us back or it doesn't make us get onto that like hamster wheel of achievement trying to outrun it. And we need to recognize that this is not really an individual problem. This is a systemic and organizational problem that needs to be addressed at that level. And so I give some suggestions in the book for if you are a person in a position of power in an organization, things that you might be able to do in that organization, but also as individuals, the things that we can do in more of a grassroots sort of way and hope that that change kind of trickles up, even though that defies gravity. But <laughs> yeah, right. And part of that is going back to getting out of the comfort zone. Um, you know, I think I say like, there, there's a story about Gina Davis started this movement in Hollywood that's like the, if, if you can see it, you can be it. And it was attempting to get more women into traditionally male roles in Hollywood or in being depicted in Hollywood. So, you know, female police officers, military, et cetera, on television and in movies. And she had this hashtag, see it, be it, something like that. Um, so that's one of the things I talk about is if you're a woman, if you're a person of color, if you know, if you're from a marginalized community, you might be the only person who has a leadership role in your C-suite or something like that. But to not shy away from that, because if you're 
the first that takes a lot of bravery and, you know, chutzpah and thick skin. But if you, if you can be it, then the rest of us can see it. And that will help, you know, more women, more people of color, more people in the LGBTQ community know that these spaces are available to them. Yeah. Even if they've been kind of given different messages for a very long time. Yeah. 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 Speaking of, of spaces being available in organizations, uh, I joined a professional organization for a while of a market research organization, which was me stepping out of my comfort zone was I got involved in market research for a number of years. And um, what I learned since I had not been a big joiner is there's always this power vacuum that they they are hungry for people who will do the work, <laughs> who will spend some time, put in some energy. And if you're willing to do that, you can pretty quickly rise pretty high, if not to the very top, in just about any organization out there. And so, and I think that's one of the reasons maybe why sometimes the people who are in the top position, whether it's a business or whatever, they may, they may not always have del- delightful personalities, but they were willing to pay the dues that it took to get into that position. Yes, but that also, like, in some ways ignores all the systemic issues that make it hard for women yeah. to be those people, for people of right. color to be those people, right? Because right. we don't have systems in place for child care. We yeah. know that, you know, women are still doing yeah. 60 to 70% of domestic stuff, even when they're the primary bread, you know, even when they work outside the home, but even when they're the primary breadwinner. Yeah. And I think that's changing. You know, I feel optimistic that that's changing, especially with COVID and work from home and flexible schedules. And, you know, we're starting to see a shift there, but I, I forget exactly the statistic, but it's something like, I might not get this exactly right, but it's something like 70% of like male CEOs, you know, the men in the C-suites have stay at home wives who don't work. So right. part of the reason they've been able to work hard, work 60 hours yeah. a week and rise to the top is because they have someone at home taking care of everything else. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so those kinds of organizational and systemic issues, I think, are really important to keep in mind when we look at like the systems are not set up for women, for people of color, for, you know right. what I mean? And, that, right. that's, and, and that's part of where the imposter stuff comes from, too, when you're the only one. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Well, this has all been uh, very rich. And um, is there anything else that we haven't touched on that you want to uh, be able to say here? Well, one thing that came to mind um, when we were talking about the subtypes, if people listen to that and go, oh, I think I'm an expert or I think I'm a perfectionist. If you want to know, I actually created a quiz. So you can go to my website, which is just jillstoddard.com slash quizzes. And there's a little quick quiz you can take to find out like what percent of perfectionist you are and what percent of expert you are. So if people were interested in that subtype part, they can do that if they if they want to. Right. And people should know that Stoddard is spelled with two D's, S-T-O-D-D-A-R-D. That's three Ds. That's three Ds. <laughs> That's right. You're a three D person. Thank you so a much. A lot of times people think I'm saying Jill's daughter. 
instead of Jill's daughters. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, if I didn't have it written out, I might be having problems with that as well. Yeah. Well, thank you, uh, Jill, for a very uh, 3D presentation. And um, it's good to meet you. And uh, I wish you well in your ongoing dissemination of yes. information. It was such a privilege to interview psychologist, podcaster, TEDx presenter, and author Jill Stoddard, Ph.D., about her new book, Imposter No More. Not only is she very accomplished, but she's also very easy to talk to, despite the fact that we come from very different theoretical backgrounds. She comes with very strong credentials in cognitive behavior therapy, having completed extensive internships with two major figures in the behavioral treatment of anxiety, David Barlow, Ph.D., and Stephen C. Hayes, Ph.D., who is best known as the founder of Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, or ACT, or ACT. I'm pleased to have interviewed both of these luminaries some years ago. This calling card helped to establish rapport with Jill and also to let her know I was familiar with the theory behind her book. In her book, she goes to some pains to make the point that fear of inadequacy cannot properly be called imposter syndrome. So many people experience it that it deserves to be considered just a part of life. I do understand that, yet I may use the term imposter syndrome here because it's just a very convenient tag. When I first learned of her book, I had a brief feeling that I had never suffered from that. I suppose the fact that I'm now established in retirement, far from the fray of academic professional life, that I had momentary amnesia, forgetting all the anxiety I suffered along the journey to get here. Jill's book is easy to read, and the concepts and techniques are easy to grasp. One of the things that makes it so accessible is that she uses plenty of examples, many from her own life. It's no wonder that she's a good writer. She has worked at it very long and hard. She's very persistent, which you know I can relate to with more than a thousand interviews under my belt. She spent years trying her hand at being a fiction writer, and the rejection slips ultimately did not deter her. She also attended writing conferences and workshops. I love her story about her writing coach, Leanne, who confronted her with a pivotal question along the lines of, do you consider yourself a psychologist who also writes or a writer who also happens to be a psychologist? She immediately recognized that her lifelong passion has been to be a writer. That broke the logjam for her. Given the prevalence of imposter syndrome among intelligent people like you, my listeners, I'm happy to recommend Imposter No More to one and all. You will learn behavioral strategies which will work with a variety of normal anxieties of living, 
Again, the author is Jill Stoddard, and Stoddard is spelled S-T-O-D-D-A-R-D. And you'll find links to a free self-assessment and her, her podcast on her website at jillstoddard.com. Hello, my name is Patty. I'm a psychotherapist and Jungian analyst in the province of Ontario, Canada. I was introduced to Shrinkwrap Radio a little while ago and find the interviews certainly helped to keep me on top of what is happening in the world of psychotherapy. As well, I love Dr. Dave's well-prepared, authentic approaches as an interviewer. I decided to make a monetary contribution recently because I want to be able to rely on the continuation of these valuable podcasts. And for this reason alone, I hope that other listeners do the same. Thanks again for providing such a great service. Bye for now. Thank you, Patty, Jungian analyst there in Ontario, Canada. Thanks for donating and encouraging others to follow your fine example. I, too, want to see Shrink Wrap Radio continue into the future, and so here I am, these many episodes down the road. Once again, time to shrink wrap it up. Thanks to Jill Stoddard, Ph.D., for sharing her experience, insights, and techniques for keeping those worrisome anxieties at bay. Next week, my return guest will be Jungian analyst Michael Gellert, speaking about his latest book on the God Complex and the Legacy of Darkness and Light. If this sounds very abstract to you, he really brings these ideas to life with many examples from film, current news, and popular media. I think you'll find this one not only enlightening, but also entertaining. So until then, this is Dr. Dave reminding you to be kind to yourselves, others, and our precious earth. You've been shrink-wrapped by Dr. Dave. All the psychology you need to know, and just enough to make you dangerous.